Porcelain Travels, true stories of humorous and harrowing experiences in, on, and around toilets, tubs, and showers encountered on my travels, excerpted from the forthcoming book, which may or may not be of the same name, by me, Matthew Felix. The Bin and the Bomb I needed a place to live in Paris. I had interrupted an extended period of traveling in Europe to return to the U.S. for the holidays. Now I was back, and I planned to settle in Paris for a few months. I could stay with my French friend Sophie initially, but I didn't want to wear out my welcome. Oddly enough, Sophie didn't have a high-speed internet connection in her apartment. So, a couple of days after my arrival, I found myself in a cafe that, according to the sign on the door, offered free internet access. I ordered an espresso, got a table next to the window, and opened my laptop. Everything seemed to be going as planned until I discovered, for some fine print on the receipt that arrived with my coffee, that the free internet access would last all of 15 minutes. I felt duped. In order to accomplish what I needed to get done, I'd have to down an espresso every 15 minutes for the next two or three hours. My internet connection may not have been wired, but I sure as hell would be. I decided to check if any other legitimately free wireless networks were breaching the walls of the technologically backward cafe. It wasn't like at home. At the time, free Wi-Fi was still much less common in Paris, but it was worth a shot. A list of networks came up. Not only was I in luck, I was surprised. An abrupt and selfish change of heart was about to leave me considering an old arch enemy my new best friend. Along with the nauseating smell of greasy burgers, a McDonald's on the other side of the plaza was spewing out free wireless waves, one more web to ensnare prospective customers, or in my case, one more ploy to recapture a sheep long ago strayed from the flock. I hadn't set foot under the golden arches for well over a decade. Now it was as if they turned upside down and were smiling back at me from my computer screen. Like an adversary who knows the battle is lost before it's begun, I did not put up a fight. The following week saw me in McDonald's twice a day, almost every day. I spent countless hours poring over housing ads, researching a never-ending list of questions about living in Paris, and keeping up on email. In no time, I was a regular. But I wasn't loving it. At first it was tough. Even during my time during high school theater, I'd never been subjected to such bright, overpowering lights. At the end of each visit, I was a little paler than at the beginning my skin taking on the bland color of the fries drowning in the bubbling cauldrons behind the counter. Then there was the inescapable stink of food being made way too fast. It smelled greasy. It smelled fake fresh and saccharine sweet, though the latter seemed odd. Did they sweeten the burgers and fries? It nauseated me. So did what I ate. After all, I couldn't sit there for hours at a time without ordering something. Looking up at the huge display over the counter... I discovered three less-than-a-euro options. One was a little package of inconceivably perfect fruit, a veritable testament to the marvels of genetic engineering. There was also a fruit and yogurt cup and two varieties of milkshakes. I naively assumed the fruit and yogurt cup would be a healthy option. I gave it a try. It tasted as though it had nearly as much sugar as a milkshake. In that case, why bother? I might as well just have the shake. I was in for yet another surprise. I could not process the shake. It made me weak. 
I don't know if it was the amount of sugar or whatever mysterious compounds might have comprised the chemical concoction, did it even contain any milk? But my body could not metabolize it. The milkshake gave me the sugar shakes, and I had trouble focusing, to the point of rendering me unable to get any work done. It was as if the neurons in my brain lost the ability to send and receive impulses, mired as they were in a synthetic vanilla goo. How did people drink these things on a regular basis? In addition to having a warning label, they needed to be served with a side of insulin and a syringe. My long hours on uncomfortable, brightly colored plastic furniture, surrounded by dusty, drab-colored plastic plants, were not in vain. After a week of searching, I appeared to have found a place to live. To be sure, I needed to see it in person. I set up an appointment, and the next day, I went to check out the apartment. Stefan met me at the metro station and whisked me off to his place, just a couple of minutes away. In order to see it, it was necessary to climb seven flights of stairs. The building was an old, grandiose Osman in an upscale neighborhood. I commented that it seemed odd there wasn't an elevator. There is, Stefan responded, before bounding out of sight. We just don't get to use it. The apartment was a chambre de bain, or service room, which was essentially where the help lived way back when. More than welcome in the homes of their employers when cooking or cleaning, at all other times apparently the servants were to remain out of sight. That explained why even though the building did in fact have an elevator, it didn't go to the top floor, where the service rooms were located. The servants didn't even have off-hour access to the main entrance. Instead, they were expected to use a separate, discreet door a few feet away, the same one through which the trash was dragged in and out. So much for fraternité, égalité, and liberté. Stefan vaulted up each flight as he had countless times before, not only his years of experience, but the long legs on his tall, lanky frame affording him a considerable advantage over me. Not that I wished him any ill will, but I was almost relieved when I found him panting at the top of the stairs. My relief was short-lived. I was soon seeing not one, but several Stefans, each moving about like crystals in a kaleidoscope. I sat down and put my head between my knees. For a moment I was back in the only session of Bikram yoga I had ever dared attend. Reliving the alarming instant, I realized that although I was watching him, and he was still talking... I no longer heard anything the instructor in the classroom Kamsana was saying. This must be what it feels like before you pass out, it occurred to me. Every drop of blood in my body had drained below my waist. If I didn't sit down that very instant, it would be lights out. It's harder if you stop partway up, Stefan offered. I barely nodded, like a coma patient who can only communicate by moving his big toe. Stefan and his girlfriend, a Chilean woman named Maria, were getting ready to spend a few months traveling around South America, which was why they were subletting their apartment. When we opened the door, Maria was there to greet us. There was, after all, no other place for her to be. I have no idea how it was possible for two adults to cohabitate in such confined quarters. Prisoners sharing a cell have more room to move around. Astronauts in space stations have more privacy. Even conjoined twins live more separate lives than Stefan and Maria at home together. Well, here it is, Stefan proclaimed in a timid statement of the obvious. He seemed nervous. Here it is, I echoed, not sure what else to say. I also forced a smile, hoping to disguise my shock and dismay. Well, uh, Stefan began, looking around as though trying to figure out where to start. Uh, there's the futon, which folds out into a bed, and the wood plank hanging from the chain can be put up against the wall uh, when you're not using it as a table. He proceeded to give me a demonstration. I, however, was distracted. 
Looking beyond the retractable table, through a large window I beheld an unobstructed, top-to-bottom view of the Eiffel Tower. It was breathtaking. Other than from open spaces like the Trocadero or the Champ de Mars, I wouldn't have thought such a view was even possible. That's the TV, Stéphane continued, making yet another statement of the obvious. A large screen hung on an adjustable arm sticking out of the wall. Couldn't miss it. And there's the internet connection, he concluded. I looked down at the floor, where a blinking black box set atop a tangled nest of wires. The thing's in there, Maria interjected, motioning to a minuscule alcove off the main room. It was about as big as one of those old ironing board closets. Yeah, an outlate and microwave, added Stefan. Apparently the alcove served as the kitchen. It's really, really important you turn off the gas whenever you're done with the outlate. Butane tanks aren't allowed in apartments anymore, Maria explained. Because there have been some explosions, but we don't have any other way to cook. It made perfect sense. If they couldn't cook, they couldn't eat, and they would die. Without cooking, death was certain. Death by butane tank explosion, on the other hand, was merely a possibility. Like any prudent, rational thinkers, they had chosen the less risky option. I took a closer look. On the shelf under the microwave, there was a small butane tank. Ironically, other than the fact it was blue, it looked just like one of those stereotypical bowling ball bombs in old cartoons. A hose ran behind some shelves, connecting the tank to a two-burner camping stove which Stéphane had referred to as the hot plate. That was where I would be doing my cooking, assuming, of course, that I myself wasn't burnt to a crisp and yet another unfortunate, newsworthy mishap. That's why you also have to make sure you always open the window when you're cooking, cautioned Stéphane, while showing me how to raise the small, four-paned window over the camping stove. And please don't remove the paper. The window pane is broken on the other side, and the paper keeps it in place, he added. I looked at the paper. It featured a huge set of lips that had benefited from a reparation, volumizing, and anti-aging regimen developed by a Parisian laboratory. I made a mental note never to remove the paper from the window. Wouldn't want to hurt those pretty lips, especially not after all the work that had gone into them. Returning my attention to whether I was up for the dangers of living with a potential bomb, not to mention that every bit of sinister threat of a gas leak lulling me into a permanent slumber, Maria deftly changed the subject. The bathroom, she said. Oh, yeah, responded Stefan with a smile, as though he couldn't believe he hadn't thought of it sooner. Come on. We stepped back out into the hallway. As we did, Stefan insisted it was paramount I always carry the key with me whenever I left the room, since the door locked automatically. I made another mental note, adding it to the ones about the gas and the lips. We walked to the end of the hall, where Stefan opened a narrow door that from the outside appeared to be a closet. And in a sense, it was. I found myself presented with the very embodiment of a water closet. Besides a tall window, there was room for nothing in the little chamber other than a toilet and the brush used to clean it. There were actually two water closets, one at each end of the hall. They were shared with the neighbors, creatures of the night who were few in number and rarely seen. As you can tell, it's clean. The neighbors are very respectful, Maria pointed out, in case I hadn't noticed. I had. But my mind had already moved on to something else. As elsewhere in my travels, water closet was not to be confused with the more comprehensive term, bathroom. There was neither a sink nor a tub or shower in the little room. Where did Stefana Maria bathe, I wondered? The answer would prove to be an ingenious, albeit unorthodox, setup back in the kitchen alcove. 
Hanging from the ceiling were two shower curtains I had overlooked initially. No doubt while wondering if the benefits of running the apartment outweighed the risk of dying in it. Stefan explained the role the curtains played in maintaining his and Maria's personal hygiene. It's easy if you just shower at the pool, he began. But when you want to shower here, first you have to put this on the floor. He motioned to an empty rubber bin that had been resting against the wall. It was the size of a laundry basket. Then, continued Maria, you unhook the shower curtains and let them come to rest in the bin. Like a flight attendant describing life-saving techniques, she demonstrated the procedure. After that, you take this hose and you hook it up to the sink. Then you turn on the water, get it to the right temperature, and you take your shower, explained Stefan. You just have to make sure not to take too long, otherwise the bin will overflow and you'll have a big mess on your hands. I thought of the time at home when I'd failed to turn the faucet all the way off after going to the bathroom in the middle of the night. The sink had a slow drain, and the water overflowed, flooding the bathroom floor, and seeping through my downstairs neighbor's ceiling. Earplugs had ensured I slept through it all, until my panicked landlord came pounding on my door early the next morning. A big mess indeed. Returning to the situation at hand, I considered the facts. By Parisian standards, the apartment was cheap. Most other apartments I'd found were much more expensive. Still, Forgetting for a moment the whole bomb thing, was I really up to showering in a laundry basket? Although I'm normally more adaptable than just about anyone I know, that sort of felt like taking it to a new extreme. On the other hand, I wouldn't have to live with roommates. The apartment had a high-speed internet connection and a TV. It also had that spectacular view of the Eiffel Tower. Then, of course, there was the one factor I had been conveniently overlooking. I was out of time. No other feasible options had presented themselves, and I didn't feel comfortable extending my stay at Sophie's. I talked the chronically codependent couple down 100 euros a month. We had a deal. <laughs>